0: One of Georgia's most powerful leaders is giving up his role. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein.
1: And I'm Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it's the first time you're listening to the podcast, welcome. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify,
0: Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Today we also have a special guest, our third political insider, Tia Mitchell, will be joining us in the second half of the program. But Patricia, this is not a show we wanted to tape today because we have to bring some significant news about Speaker David Ralston and his decision not to stand again to be House Speaker not because of political drama or intrigue or challenges or coup, coup attempts and all this other stuff, which, which has been, you know, he has been targeted by all sorts of internal revolts over the years, but because of a significant health concern. He does plan to stay, remain a member of the Georgia legislature. He does not face any opposition, so he will certainly win re-election on Tuesday, but he will not be holding the speaker's gavel, and we're gonna talk all about that on today's episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, um, this is not the news that we expected on a Friday before the election, but I think Speaker Ralston and his aides just wanted to get it out there so it was known before the election and so that, that House Republicans could start the process, a very, which is going to be a its own nightmarish process of selecting who the next speaker is. But before we even talk about all the jockeying that's already going on, your tweet, your instant reaction mm-hmm. struck me because I, I I heard about it. I got new wind of it a little bit before it was officially announced. I called you and we, we both kind of were frantic about uh, making sure our story was out there and that our editors were alerted and the other people in our newsroom who needed to be alerted were alerted. But, you know, it was it took a little while, but we started to take stock of this. And Speaker Ralston has been a key leg of the three-legged stool that runs the state for more than a decade now, for 12 years now. And, you know, it's outlasted, many you know, governors, he has been this sort of stability in the Georgia General Assembly, even at a time when politics are so divided and divisive in the state.
1: Yeah. And you talk about him being one leg of the three-legged stool. There are times, or there have been times when it feels like he's the only leg of the three-legged stool. There were periods of time when the state Senate was embroiled in its own power struggle, when Governor Brian Kemp had this threat of a huge and serious primary against him, Donald Trump attacking him publicly and continuously. And David Ralston was really the the only steady ship in the ocean, it seemed like in the Georgia Capitol. So you just can't overstate the role that he plays down there. He's obviously the leader of his party down there. He also oversees the workings of the state house. He was really integral in how the Capitol continued to operate, closed down at first during COVID, then continued to operate, but with very specific health measures in place. Um, He's a mentor to a number of members down there, including Democrats. And I've been really struck by the outpouring of really emotion from Democrats, as well as Republicans. Over this news, you know, luckily it is a health situation, not, you know, not anything more immediately catastrophic than that. But people, a lot of members have only ever served with him as the speaker. I've obviously only ever covered the legislature with him as the speaker. He's been there since Barack Obama's first year in office. And just imagine how much politics has changed since then. But he has been the one constant in Georgia politics. Most people in the state... Don't know who he is. (laughs) Wouldn't know him if they were sitting next to him at a Braves game, which they might have been because he loves Braves games. (laughs) Um, But his influence, I was really struck when I started covering the Capitol in 2021. I was really struck by how much power and influence he has and by how judicious he is in using that power. Um, He doesn't run around cracking people's skulls. It's a very strategic and judicious use of power which makes it even more significant
0: yeah he doesn't boast about that power but he's you can make the argument that he's the number two he's the second most powerful person in the state and some would make the argument that he's the most powerful person in the state and to put it into context the georgia house has the final say on or at least one of the most significant influences on the state's more than 30 billion dollar annual budget and the speaker himself has an enormous sway over which bills advance which are sent to the dustbin nothing reaches the floor nothing he opposes will reach the floor of the georgia house without his approval so if there's a bill that has caught his attention in a negative way you better fix it because it's not going to go forward um you know we talked about him as a moderating influence because he has pushed back against some far-right proposals that go much further than some of the even the the laws that democrats very quick to criticize. He's been a force of kind of reining some of those measures in. I mean, there's a number of big bills, you know, that we've talked about that have been controversial that have never gone anywhere because of his opposition. At the same time, though, he is no moderate. He might be a moderate influence, but he's very proud to be a conservative. And over the years, he's backed measures that expanded gun rights, restricted abortion, cracked down on violent crime, cut taxes, all sorts of measures that Democrats oppose, he supported. And he also backed the rewrite of the state's election law in 2021, even though he rejected Donald Trump's attempt to overturn his defeat. So he's managed to corral all those measures I just talked about through a very fractious Republican caucus in the Georgia General Assembly. I mean, there's more than 100 Republicans in the Georgia General Assembly right now, and, it, and it's not easy getting them all to agree on anything, let alone controversial bills, when some think it should go further, some think it goes too far, some think the priorities are in the wrong place. There's all sorts of backbiting and internal bickering going on, and he's managed to keep them all, for the most part, going in one direction.
1: Yeah, I really think of him as the top on a pot that is on a flame, and so occasionally that pot will Build up a lot of steam, and he's he will let off some of that steam. And so, there have been bills that he did not necessarily want to pass, but knew his caucus very much wanted to pass and knew their voters wanted to see it pass. And so, he uh, would find a way to get those bills through the chamber in a way that still was conservative enough to please those members and get the job done but maybe pulled it back a little bit and i'll point to um, the transgender sports legislation Mm -hmm. that passed on the very last day of the session last year that was a bill that would have in georgia law banned transgender athletes from participating in sports that were not in the gender that they were born instead of writing that into code uh, and it seemed like that bill was going nowhere, but it became very clear that the conservatives really wanted that, that Governor Kemp really wanted that, felt like he needed that in his GOP primary, needed to prove his Republican bona fides. And so that it became very clear that bill needed to move. Uh, the Speaker had had a bill, an alternative bill written for weeks and had gone through with his legislative council. What can we do to get the job done, but also find a way that just taps the brakes on this a little bit? So the- The final bill said that that decision would be made by the Georgia High School Sports Association, um, the kind of external authority that has a lot, you know, very connected to the legislature, mm-hmm. but it was an external authority. And it did it right into the law that transgender children were banned from sports. And that was very important to some members of the legislature, not in his party, but who had transgender children. And they were very worried in the speaker's office not to exacerbate a really difficult situation for a transgender children, but it nonetheless did pass this bill. So it's a, you know, he's, had this kind of approach to a number of different pieces of legislation. Even in the six-week abortion ban, there are exceptions written into that bill, including an exception for fetal abnormalities. That was something that was brought to him by the chair of the Health and Human Services Committee on the House side as just something really important coming from the medical community. So, you know, all these little details, you don't think about it. Mm -hmm. You don't think about 99% of these bills until they affect you. And then when they do affect you, there, in many cases, there will be a piece of it written in by David Ralston that changed it ever so slightly that will make it more palatable to more people.
0: I think that analogy you made about him kind of being the top of this kettle that's on fire and every so often- So it doesn't explode. It, so it doesn't explode uh, is perfect because there's also other instances of him letting, kind of holding his nose and letting legislation that we know he personally opposes because he set it on the record. Um, that he personally opposed certain things, like the transgender measure. I mean, this was something I, I in the minutes after the legislative session ended, I asked him. I said, you, you know, you've you've been on the record multiple times saying you don't like any any sort of crackdowns like this, any sort of restrictions." And he said, "You know what? I'm just paraphrasing, but he says sometimes you've you got to do something to help the party." And, and at that point, it was looked at as a major win for Governor Kemp, who did support that that legislation, and was in a tough battle against David Perdue in his primary battle. He's also promoted other legislation, despite those qualms. one of them that stuck out to me was back in 2016, when he let a religious liberty measure that opponents saw as discriminatory to the LGBTQ community, he let that go through to Governor Deal's desk and Governor Deal ended up vetoing it. But he has a long record and we saw it on Twitter. We see it on social media. I've gotten of my texts from Democratic lawmakers who say that the speaker did not have to give them a say, but he did. There's measures like those looking to expand rape test kits, prioritizing bills that steer state funding to rule Georgia, easing restrictions on foster care and adoption, the hate crimes legislation, the citizen's arrest statute, legalizing a form of medical marijuana for people in need. All those measures, they seem like they would be easy wins in the state legislature, and some of them ended up passing unanimously. But behind the scenes took so much effort, so much drama in some cases. In some cases, like the medical marijuana bill in particular, years to pass. The hate crimes bill, literally decades to pass, and they passed on Speaker David Ralston's watch through effective navigating of the legislative system and building consensus with not only Republican lawmakers, who who some had their own issues with those measures, but also winning over Democratic support as well.
1: Yeah, and it's so interesting you talk about sort of like the details of those measures. He is, I think, kind of just an old school legislator, an institutionalist, very concerned about uh, the reputation of the state, the reputation of the House, the well-being of the members of the House, but of course has had to survive some major speed bumps in his own career, one of which was was this terrible scandal that involved his law firm getting all kinds of continuances for legislative duties Went and if you're the house speaker that's basically every day so uh, that was uh something that really had caused a lot of pain to a number of people on the other side of those trials having delays of the you know sort of justice that they were seeking or at least trying to get closure on something um so that ended up being a major major problem but ralston drafted the language to change the process. And that ended up being enough for his uh, caucus to feel like that was enough and for his voters to feel like that was enough. And he reminds me a lot of how Speaker John Boehner, and I know I've quoted Boehner on this many times before, you know, he says, if you're a speaker without followers, you're just out taking a walk, or you're just talking to yourself. (laughs) So you need your caucus behind you or you're not the speaker. So you have to find a way to marshal that support and a lot of it that you can't afford to have people take a run at you and even have the tiniest chance of taking you out. And so for as much as he is concerned about civility in the house, decor and demeanor between the members and all of those things, he also, you know, you have to have a, a ferocious ability to win to stay in that position of power for as long as he has and so it's yeah. been it's been really something to watch
0: and has survived the number of attempts some half-hearted some more significant to oust him there's always rumblings every year oh so and so is gonna make a challenge but you know he has survived all of these ouster attempts but look as you mentioned he has a really good bird's eye view of all this because he was the one back in 2008 who launched a challenge against then House Speaker Glenn Richardson. This came after a really, really bad internal GOP feud. I covered it at the time for the Associated Press. There was a fight between Glenn Richardson and and then Governor Sonny Perdue over tax cuts and other issues, and it was just dramatic. And that session ended in basically a furor, and the House, the Senate, and the Governor's office were all fighting. Not much got done. A lot was left on the table. And a $142 million tax cut was on the chopping block by Governor uh, Sonny Perdue. He ended up vetoing it in a a kind of a thumb of the nose at the legislature. And so enter David Ralston in 2008 who said, okay, I'm going to go, you know, after all that drama, I'm going to go try to clean it up. I'm going to bring a more level-headed, more consensus-driven, and more let's-get-it-done approach to the Georgia General Assembly he was smoked, he was creamed by Glenn Richardson. He used all the levers of power, as a speaker should, and as David Ralston ended up doing to his rivals to kind of quell the rebellion. But what it did for David Ralston, unbeknownst to him, was a couple years later, when Glenn Richardson was embroiled in all sorts of controversy, his ex-wife said in a TV interview that he had an affair with a lobbyist while pushing legislation that would benefit the lobbyist's company. So he had to resign in disgrace and other deputies of his did not pan out <laughs> for the job. And so, again, inter David Ralston, who who gave it a, a real big challenge back in 2008. He was looked at as a plain-spoken, level-headed guy who could bring stability to a House Republican caucus that was riven by all that scandal. So he comes in on this note of, okay, let's all kind of start over, let's calm things down, and let's get things done. And you know, it took a while for him to get his footing, right? There's always challenges and controversies and all that. It's the Georgia General Assembly. There's always, that's built into it. But he has a grip on, not just on his Republican caucus, but just on General Assembly at large. He understood the needs, he understood what the governors wanted and what lawmakers wanted and was able to kind of balance that. And you know, Sometimes Democrats liked it, sometimes Democrats hated it, sometimes Republicans liked it, sometimes Republicans hated it, but he got things done.
1: Yeah, and so I think looking forward, I think one thing that Georgians will see in their own lives if they ever have the unfortunate need, is that probably the biggest bill that Speaker Ralston has gotten done and the one that he said he is most proud of just happened, and that was an expansion to mental health services here in the state. And a lot of that bubbled up from his own district and Blue Ridge, where he was hearing from the sheriff and just from people in that little small town. He lives in downtown Blue Ridge. You know, we'll Mm -hmm. go over to have dinner down the street. The waiters, uh, I went up to interview him in Blue Ridge. The waiters at Harvest on Main call him David. They're like, Hey, David. You know, I'm like, Oh, you call him David? Wow. I've literally never hurt anyone because in the Capitol, it's so formal. But in Blue Ridge, he's just David to them and was hearing about uh, people really struggling with mental health, nowhere to go when they were in trouble. The only person they could call was the sheriff. And then the sheriff is not, it feels like he's not trained. His deputies are not trained. They don't have the resources to supervise them in the, in the, Jail. And he's like, and they don't belong in the jail. They need help. They need mental health services, but there were no beds to send them to. So, over the last couple of years, Ralston drafted a very wide ranging piece of legislation to expand the number of beds here in the state, to expand the opportunities for people to be trained here in the state, to have loan forgiveness for anybody who goes into a mental health profession here in the state, and really start to work on a major, major expansion in what he sees as a critical need and what we all see i think as an expanding need here in the state and with basically kind of a 1970s infrastructure for a very 2022 situation and so that'll be a that's a bill that's been passed and funded i know he was hoping to have more time to get more funding to it but i think he's going to probably have those conversations with people In the next several weeks here and even into his term if he if he stays on um, as he stays on to continue to try and beef that up
0: yeah and you know we can't discuss speaker ralston's legacy without discussing who will replace him and that's the next big question for the georgia general assembly and the republicans who will almost assuredly be in control remain in control of the state house after the Tuesday election, because another legacy of, of David Ralston was was ensuring that was uh, you know playing a, a major role in the redistricting process. You know, Ralston and other Republicans could have gone much further than they did, and tried to you know sweep away some some more seats that could have led to short term gains. But the worry from the Republican demographers and others who are looking at the maps was long term. Uh, you know, it could imperil their majority. So instead, he went for the more conservative approach. Uh, Republicans might actually lose a couple seats on Tuesday's election, but the districts are drawn to continue a safe Republican majority, probably, you know, with the anticipation that it could be through the rest of the decade, although who knows. But there are a number of people, you know, the House is full of ambitious politicians. Likely the real race won't start in earnest, or at least in public, until after the Tuesday election. But what we wrote, know right now is there's four names that we're really looking at: um, House Majority Leader John Burns, who is one of the highest-ranking Republicans in the House; House Speaker Pro Tem Jan Jones, the number two Republican in the State House; Matt Hatchett, who is a committee chair and, and a very uh, and another um, who was a committee chair and another member of David Rawson's leadership team, and then someone on the outside, Barry Fleming, who is the architect of the voting law. It was said on the record to me that he is definitely interested in running for the seat and already planning out that. And so, Patricia, you know, it's unseemly because it's happening right after. I get it. It's it's not fun to talk about, but it is a very important part of Georgia politics is who's the next speaker, because that person instantly becomes one of the most important and influential people in the state of Georgia.
1: Yes, and it's going to be important not just to Republicans, but also to Democrats. It's going to be important to everybody who has any interaction with the Speaker's Office, which is pretty much everyone in the state in some level of state government. You have to think the city of Atlanta is going to be really interested in that because of that Buckhead City legislation out there. Ralston was a big part of tamping that down and saying, let's give Andre Dickens a chance. And he and Andre Dickens just hit it off immediately. Um, And will the next speaker have that kind of chemistry with the new mayor of the city of Atlanta. It seemed like that was going to be a really effective relationship for the two of them to have. Let's see who the next person is. Also Democrats in the House chamber. They have long felt that Speaker Ralston was as good as it was going to get for a Republican leader. And um, obviously, he is an older gentleman at some point, somewhere down the road in the next however many years it was anticipated that he would retire uh, not this soon but you know obviously at some point and democrats sort of rolled their eyes and be like who could it be you know it could either be somebody who uh, steps in and follows in the speaker's footsteps as somebody who values the input of democrats although of course at the end of the day is delivering for a republican caucus as well or it could be somebody who's like hey i've got the votes and you don't so see ya, you know, see ya on Friday. Uh, So it really is going to change probably what it's like to be a Democrat in that chamber, because it is very much up to the speaker how much leeway, how much input they get on some of these bills, and particularly in committee, and uh, how they are able to spend their time constructively as well. Obviously, over in the state Senate, they are going to have a new leader, uh, no matter who wins, in the lieutenant governor's race, that's going to be a new person in the Capitol as the leader of the state Senate? How will that person interact with this speaker? The new speaker uh, really depends on who it is. Will they be sort of the same steadying influence that Ralston has been? Or will it be a kind of a conservative firebrand like Barry Fleming? We just don't know. So it creates an enormous amount of uncertainty For everybody in the Capitol, many people in state government who knew how to go to the speaker, how to say, listen, these are the resources we need, or here's the problem I'm having. He was known to, uh, is known to give quite a bit of individual attention in situations like that. Uh, Will they have a speaker who they can go to in the future? They're all going to have to wait and see. And then, of course, Governor Kemp managed to forge a very productive relationship Mm -hmm. with speaker ralston that was instrumental in all of the bills that kemp was able to pass through the chamber and take out onto the campaign trail in both his primary and the general election will kemp have that kind of reliable relationship in the future we just don't know
0: yeah and don't forget too at the onset of governor kemp's term there was a very frosty relationship with, between him and, and Speaker Ralston. I mean, they were fighting about, Speaker Ralston was pushing for deeper tax cuts. Governor Kemp wanted to fulfill his promise to give teachers a $5,000 pay raise. At the time, the budget was not as juiced as it is right now to do everything you wanted to do. It was a very tight budget. Now there's a $6 billion plus surplus, so you could do that and a lot more, but back then you couldn't. And there was this you know, very poisonous rivalry between those two men. You know, they put it aside for major moments and, and to compromise in, on key legislation. But, you know, I've seen that relationship just transform over the last couple of years. And now they are on the same page. Again, well, we will be talking so much more about Speaker Ralston's legacy in the Georgia General Assembly and the battle to replace him over the next few weeks. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song
0: We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We are two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts. In your first month of unlimited digital access, it's only 99 cents. Subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Go ahead and subscribe. Tia Mitchell is an AJC political insider who's also our Washington correspondent, but now she's in Georgia working on the campaign trail with us. Hey, Tia. Hey. Well, I see you've quickly become accustomed to (laughs) taping from the car. You're in your car. Where are you right now?
3: I am in um, East Atlanta Village getting ready to stop by this kind of voting rights, voting awareness rally with Congresswoman Nakima Williams and the NAACP. So not really a campaign event, but um, just one of those kind of on the trail events that I wanted to stop by and show my face.
0: Well, you get to see the congresswoman all the time in Washington, so I'm sure it'll be fun to see her outside of the state of the U.S. Capitol down here in Atlanta. Well, not only has the AJC brought you into Georgia for political coverage, but Comedy Central has also brought The Daily Show to Georgia for its coverage of the midterm election. And you got to sit down one on one with Roy Wood Jr., your college classmate.
3: Yes. So Roy and I go all the way back to our days at Florida A&M University And our unapologetically ATL newsletter, which is our newsletter about Black culture in Atlanta, they were working on a special election issue that came out on Thursday. And so as part of their election issue, they reached out to me and we came up with the idea of doing an interview with Roy Wood Jr. As you mentioned, he's here with The Daily Show. They're taping live shows. But... One of the things they had to do to prepare for the live shows is they were on the ground here in Atlanta working on different packages, interviewing different candidates and voters so that their live shows could be full of, like, you know, local Georgia-based angles to the election. So it was really interesting to talk to him, of course, about his career. We reminisced about our college days. He credits me with helping him graduate. Oh, that's awesome. But we also did talk about, you know, the election and politics and, and what he's learned after being here on the ground in Georgia looking at the midterms.
0: Without further ado, let's dive right into it.
3: So on the first night of your live show, Stacey Abrams was the guest. Yes. And of course, the Daily Show is considered, you know, more liberal, I guess. And she was very Left well leaning. received. Yeah. yeah Left leaning. Were you surprised as you read in the that, you know, she's not doing as well. That doesn't seem to be the same level of energy or support this time around for Stacey Abrams. Did that surprise you?
4: I am surprised at the polling differential between her and Brian Kemp at the same mile marker as compared to 2016 when they 18, uh, 2018 was it? Mm-hmm. when they ran against one another. Um, but, you know, again, this all goes back to, you know, what I was just talking about. If Brian Kemp is just going around to all the red counties, like Brian Kemp could low-key just say, you can have Atlanta, Stacey. I'm going to get these other 100, what is it, 157 counties? 158?
3: It's like 107. 70s, something. I ain't take
4: Georgia history. I'm from Alabama. I know, right? I know y'all got a lot of counties.
3: 159, I think.
4: Yeah, 159. And I didn't even know that. I'm just stealing her quote from last (laughs) (laughs) night. But you're in the 150s in counties. If you get the rest of those counties, then you can go neck and neck. And then you sprinkle in a little gerrymandering on top of it. Put a little gerrymander on that and split up them black towns and split that black vote and that one didn't ever go that's a good stolen election right there, baby. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, I just I just think that, you know, I am shocked, but I'm not on the ground enough in Georgia in the last four years to know everything that that Brian Kemp was or wasn't doing. We all know that Stacey Abrams played an integral role in Warnock and Ossoff's wins in 2020 and, you know, working and being a surrogate for them.
3: I definitely think, and I mean, Brian Kemp is the incumbent. He has a record to run on, but the, the, the issues... I think that's where he's been very successful is for all the <coughs> single issue voters. He's given them things, you know, the guns, if you're guns, if you're abortion, on the
4: right, of course. Correct. Anything Give me the one thing I want. He's
3: given them, and that's really helped
4: him. Um, but also, I'm going to cut Medicaid.
3: Well, just not expand
4: it. But, yes. but you're not going yeah. right. to. But we're not, not going to talk about that.
3: Not talk about that, right.
4: Even though you're broke and you're the one dealing with all of these rising health care costs. You can't get a house because y'all let all I don't know the percentage, but I know y'all let a a lot of people not from Georgia buy all the houses, right? right?
0: Well, Tia, yeah, uh, Roy Wood Jr. hit some of the major themes of this campaign, expansion of Medicaid, Ryan Kemp's permissive gun policies, the other issues that are, are really defining the race on the Democratic side in particular, right? The, the centerpiece of, of Stacey Abrams' campaign back in 2018 and the start of her campaign this year was expanding Medicaid, expanding Medicaid. So it was interesting that, you know, as Roy Wood Jr. said, he's not really paying close, close, close attention. He's not playing super focused attention on Georgia, but at the same time, he kind of knows some of the broader themes that that we've been talking about.
3: Yeah, the top level issues. And yes, he gave us a lot to unpack. And I encourage people to go and, you know, the whole conversations, half an hour, we're taking snippets. Please don't roast me for drawing a blank on the number of counties. I did get it right at the end. There are 159. You got it right. You got it right. (laughs) But um, yes, you know, what Roy was trying to say, and you'll hear it, like I said, a little bit more, uh, detail in the longer conversation is that a lot of voters, particularly on the right, there are certain kind of more cultural and social issues that they care a lot about. In addition to like the overall things of like, of course we know the economy and things like that, but we know, you know, being anti-abortion, being pro-gun, being, um, again, Brian Kemp has also resisted expanding Medicaid and things like that. And what Roy Wood Jr. is saying is if you're able to get voters that care about certain cultural and social issues on your side, you don't have to give them everything. But if you give different people the one thing they want, that's a way to build a coalition. And, you know, I would argue Governor Kemp has done a really good job sprinkling so many things out there during his first term in office that just about anyone can point to something he's done that they like. Again, it's not like they necessarily like everything, but he's done so many things in so many sectors, you know, job growth and growing industries and even, you know, recently sending checks to Georgia families. That's the covid relief money and reopening businesses. If you're a business owner, you know, in addition to the guns, the abortion, the the schools, um, he's given people so many opportunities to say, I like that the governor did X. And I think that's really helped him.
0: Next up, we're going to hear you and Roy Wood Jr. talk a little bit about the fight to get African-American men, to get black men to vote more, because this is an issue that Stacey Abrams and other Democrats have really worried about, have have talked about um, since the summer, is, in Stacey's words, if if black men vote, I win. So let's hear that conversation.
3: Let's pivot. Black men. We have been writing a lot at the AJC. We've been talking about white people, and yes, white people are not voting for Democrats. But we've been writing a lot about the AJC that when you look at the black vote, yes, the overwhelming number of black men and women vote with Democrats. But black men are more likely to support Republicans than black women are, and that's something that is further, you know, making it more difficult for Stacey Abrams. Um, that's something we saw with Trump. Trump got more black men in 2020. You know,
4: Killer Mike, call me. You know. <laughs> Killer yeah, we we'll call you right back, Killer Mike. She's she talking about black men and Republican, yeah.
3: Well, yeah, because we know black killer Mike.
4: Um He made no friends this election, has
3: he? He has not. And he and i so tell tell me about that. Speak, speak on behalf of all black men of America.
4: As a person, as a black man who had two Trump voters in his family that were black men. What I've been able to ascertain is that as a black man, you know, if you're down bad financially and you have a candidate that's coming in and is talking money and is talking about doing things that will help you make money, that's where the choice was made for them. You know, and I think that, you know, again, going back to the old single issue thing, you know, there, I think that Stacey Abrams platform is far more beneficial for African-Americans, especially men, if you look at it and you play the long game, but that also requires you to do a lot of research. That's the thing about politics and civics. It's complicated and it's boring and it's hard to figure out and it's hard to summate in under 60 seconds and our attention spans have only gotten shorter as social media has grown. So if you're a black man and you're burdened with being the provider and making sure the money and making sure the food is on the table, and you got a candidate going i'll make sure you can get the money and you ain't got the time to research and figure out that's a lie got you he got you
3: my favorite thing about listening back to this clip is hearing me censor myself from going on a rant about killer mike i <laughs> well, was to, i was like let me just mm, stop it to you and then move
0: on well that i was actually about to ask you about that so tell me if you you don't want to go on a rant but Um, We haven't really discussed all that we've we covered it in the jolt, but we haven't really gone into into a deep detail about why Killer Mike's position has been uh, so controversial because basically uh, You know he endorsed Bernie Sanders. He was one of Bernie Sanders biggest surrogates But at the same time he's had a lot of he's said a lot of nice things about Governor Kemp over the years And in particular a few weeks ago and that enraged a lot of Stacey Abrams supporters
3: Killer Mike is entitled to his opinion, of course, like anyone else. And as a celebrity, someone who, you know, has had a rap career that's given him a platform. Of course, his opinion is going to be, you know, perhaps more noted than just a quote unquote regular Joe. That being said, I think sometimes we equate his platform with being an activist or someone who's particularly plugged into politics. And I don't think he is. I think he's someone who has access. And I think he has a point of view, particularly as a business owner and someone who's trying to grow his various streams of income. That means he does want access to the political power. And of course, in Georgia, that is Brian Kemp, that's the governor. Like any business owner would want the ear of the governor. And if any business owner gets in good with the governor, they're gonna have nice things to say.
0: What really kind of precipitated this is he, a couple weeks ago said that he complimented the governor for having a quote, for an effective week with black people. That was after the governor went to several events that were geared towards African American voters.
3: And I think it was like right after something else where like people were criticizing Stacey Abrams. Like, I think he was kind of capitalizing off of a kind of a rough week for Abrams, if I kind of remember that timing.
0: Yeah. And around the same exact time, he also a few days later, after a lot of criticism, he said, you know what? I'm not going to be publicly endorsing any candidate. We'll be keeping my vote a private matter. So. I think he heard some of that criticism and made his position known that he would not be making a position. But, you know, as you said, the damage has been done with some of his fans. Tia, let's listen to another segment where you talk about this show's decision to come here, not just for a day, but for, for a full week right before the midterm.
4: The Daily Show is in Georgia because there is an issue in Georgia that isn't also happening somewhere else in the country. I think Georgia's a perfect microcosm of what's happening Across the country, when it, when we're talking about specific issues, be it voting rights or voter suppression, with you know the, y'all can't have no snacks at the polls. Apparently, if you pull out a oatmeal cream pie, you go to jail. If you get a, somebody bring you a sip of water, you're gonna go to jail. Um, you know you have you have a a gun law here where you can just straight buy a gun the same way you buy a Snickers bar. So there's a lot of people that have problems with that. You have a heartbeat bill that your governor is pushing. And so I think that these are all discussions that are happening in other places across the country. And as we know from 2020, you know, Ossoff and Warnock were essentially what helped break a tie, like. (laughs)
3: Like, The balance of power in the U.S. Senate.
4: So how many laws were, how many things were Joe Biden able to do or to block from happening because of those two things? And so I think that we're in the same situation here again. And that's part of why Trevor wanted to come here. You know, the the conversations we had internally, if I'm not mistaken, it was Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona.
0: Yeah, Atlanta's better.
4: Arizona too hot, Wisconsin too cold. This has chicken wings.
0: This has chicken wings. And I was watching one of the episodes where um, I, I know they went to Jr. Crickets. So I, I know they got the the lemon pepper wet, which I love as well.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think it just kind of brings everything full circle. You know, we know how much focus has turned to Georgia. You know, I thought after the 2020 election when Biden won and then like the runoffs that like it would the interest would fade after the runoffs. And we know it has not only not faded but it's only grown more intense and you know Roy for those who watch the video he's wearing a sweatshirt that says Atlanta influences everything and that's kind of become one of the mottos for the city but it's very true in the fact that like Atlanta and then Georgia overall you know even from a political perspective these days we're influencing everything so this is the place to be. Amen. Well, Tia,
0: where can listeners see that video and find the full interview?
3: So the full interview is on the AJC's YouTube page, but you can also find it if you subscribe to our Unapologetically ATL newsletter that comes out every Thursday. And um, we just hope that you watch it and engage and and continue to support the AJC. And I really appreciate you guys for having me on the Politically Georgia podcast once again.
0: Of course, thanks for joining us. We here at Politically Georgia would love to know what you think of our podcast. Please click the link in today's episode description, answer a few questions, so we'll know how to make this podcast even better. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or like today's episode whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
4: I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: And I'm Ned Ravone, Mm -hmm. lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody.
4: It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn
3: something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities, Atlanta's thriving arts scene, and the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you.
4: We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL.
3: Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.